Well, why don't we get started? Since uh, it's a couple minutes after 7, we have some folks here. Carl, we have a couple people on Zoom as well. Three people on Zoom, good. Well, why don't we uh, pray, as we always do, to start our time together and trust that the Lord is going to speak to us tonight. Heavenly Father, of course, we just want to thank you so much for how good you are to us and the grace that you've given us, the, the love that you've shown us, your kindness, your forgiveness. Um, we just want to acknowledge, Lord, uh, how amazed we are that you would reach out to us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would be patient with us, that you would be faithful to us, that you would draw us unto yourself. We just uh, thank you so much for that, Lord God. We thank you particularly, Lord, for the blessing of being able to uh, read your word together. Thank you for the things that you teach us in Scripture, the things that you show us. And we are uh, always wanting, Lord God, to know you better, to understand you better, uh, to understand your word. And even as we were talking about when we met a couple of weeks ago, uh, Father, we really want to uh, understand what you are saying to us through your word. Lord, you are speaking, you are revealing, you are showing, and we want to know rightly what it is you have recorded for us. And so, Father, we are so grateful to you for your Holy Spirit, because, Jesus, you promised when you were still on this earth before you went to the cross, you promised your disciples that when you returned to the Father, that you would send the Counselor, the Teacher, the one who would remind us of your words, the one who would instruct us and reveal more of you and the Father to us, and that is the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to listen attentively to what you are saying to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, as you wrote seven messages to the seven churches that opened the book of Revelation, you said, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So, Jesus, we want to hear through your Holy Spirit what you are saying to us. Because we know that you are encouraging, challenging, correcting, and speaking what we need to hear. And so help us to be attentive. And, Father, all of this reminds us that we need your help. We need your wisdom. We need you, Lord God to rightly understand what we will read together tonight. And particularly, Father, as we continue to talk about final judgment, we just want to thank you that one day, Lord, all of creation will stand before you. You are creator and you are judge. And right now, so many don't believe that. And many think it's a fairy tale or a myth. But Lord, we know that one day all of creation will stand before you, and you will be the righteous judge. Lord, we know that you do everything well. And while there is so much of this, Lord, that we will continue to not fully understand, we know, Lord God, that everything that you do is right, and everything you do is good. And so as we consider final judgment, and as we consider some of the passages of Scripture that speak about it, we just thank you, Lord God, that that is what we are looking forward to a time, Lord Jesus, where you will righteously judge all of your creation and you will receive the glory. And we're grateful to you for that. So, Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. 
Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started to talk about the theme of final judgment. And again, um, we're going to continue to use the sheet that we started on two weeks ago. And then we're going to jump to the second sheet, which simply says final judgment part two. So just by way of sort of quick review, I want to reread 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is the verse that we opened with a couple of weeks ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And again, on the sheet that you have in front of you, uh, Final Judgment, this is the first passage under biblical topics and themes. So 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So in many ways, this is a really helpful sort of summary verse. It's reminding us of where creation is heading. And creation is heading to final judgment. And remember, we talked about the word that the Apostle Paul uses there. NIV translates it as the judgment seat. It's the idea of the place where judgment occurs. Sometimes it was literally a seat upon which the judge would sit as judgment was pronounced. Sometimes it also is referring to a court. A couple of places where it's used in the book of Acts, it refers to a court. This is the Greek word bima or bema. Some pronounce it. You may have heard that. But that is what is being presented here. And so the idea is that all of creation will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And again, one of the things that is emphasized here is that we will all be judged by what we have done while we are in the body. So how we have lived our life, what we have done with the time that the Lord has given us. We will be judged for that. The good things that we've done, the bad things that we've done. And so what we looked at next was some associated events around final judgment. So point two on the sheet, the general resurrection. We read John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus says a time is coming where everyone who is in the grave will hear his voice, and they will all come out. And some will experience the resurrection of life, and some will experience the resurrection of judgment. So this is referred to as the general resurrection. This is the resurrection of all humanity. And so what we are seeing is that final judgment is associated with the general resurrection. Point number three on the sheet, the end of the age. Again, we talked about this looking at Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 36 to 43, is where Jesus explains the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Remember, Jesus told a parable where a farmer plants wheat, and then at the, in the night his enemy comes and sows weeds, and they grow up together. And the servants of the farmer ask the owner of the land, do you want us to, tear, to pull up the weeds now? And the master says, no, you might pull up the wheat when you do it. Wait till the final harvest. So specifically in verses 39 and 40, Jesus, as he's explaining the parable to his disciples, says that the final harvest is the end of the age. And that is where the weeds and the wheat will be separated and the weeds will be thrown into the furnace for burning. So again, we have this connection between final judgment and 
the end of the age, final judgment and the resurrection of all humanity. And then the last passage that we looked at before we ran out of time is point number four, the coming of the Son of Man in glory. And we read the opening verses of Matthew 25, 31 to 33. And again, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his throne and he will divide all of humanity as goats on his left and sheep on his right. So again, we have this sort of cluster of connections with final judgment. We have the general resurrection, we have the end of the age, and we have the coming of the Son of Man or the return of Jesus Christ in his glory. All of these events are connected to, and final judgment is connected to them. So that was basically the foundation that we laid a couple of weeks ago. I'll pause here just to see if there's any comments or questions about that before we get into point number five. But any comments or questions about what we looked at a couple of weeks ago? No, everything's clear? Okay. So point number five is basically just looking a little bit closer at specifically what is judged. And each one of these passages of scripture is going to emphasize a different aspect of what is judged. Our deeds or our works or our actions will be judged. Our words will be judged. And our thoughts will be judged. So that first passage that's there is the remainder of the passage of Matthew 25. Remember, we just said a second ago, Matthew 25 says that the Son of Man will come in his glory. Oops, 34 to 46. And of course, the context is the verses before 31 to 33. But the Son of Man comes in his glory, he sits on his throne, and then he judges all humanity. And humanity is basically divided into two groups, the goats and the sheep. And then Jesus goes on to say, we're not going to take the time to read this tonight, but Jesus goes on to say, you know, to the sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And, of course, the sheep are going to be somewhat surprised and say, Lord, when did we ever see you in this situation and do these things to you? And then Jesus says, as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. So again, what we're emphasizing here is that Jesus is judging the sheep on what they did. So part of what is judged is our deeds. Now, of course, he goes on in the second part of this to talk about the goats and basically the same list of things, except each time the goats failed to do it. As they had an opportunity to minister to those who were in need, they failed to do it. And so they are condemned or judged for their failure to act. And of course, they say the same thing, you know, when did we see you in that situation and not do it? And Jesus said, when you didn't do it to one of the least, you didn't do it to me. So this first passage under point five is making clear that our deeds are going to be judged. So what we do with our days, what we do with our life, it's going to matter. It's going to count. Remember, we're all going to stand before 
the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? The second passage, let's read that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. And again, this passage indicates that we are going to be judged for our words, what we say. Not just what we do, but what we say as well. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. It says, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. So again, we see Jesus using a phrase here that he uses frequently, the day of judgment. That's another way of just simply talking about final judgment. Sometimes it's even abbreviated just the day. And of course, we talked about in the Old Testament, it's common to talk about the day of the Lord. And specifically, the day of the Lord can refer to that day when the Lord shows up, when the Lord appears, and the Lord appears in judgment. Then the Son of Man will appear in all of His glory and sit on His throne. So these are all designations for that end of this age. Again, this is how this age concludes, with the judgment of all humanity, of all creation. So... Jesus is talking about the day of judgment. And he specifically says that on the day of judgment, what we have said is going to be judged. But I tell you the truth, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. So it isn't just our actions or our inactivity that is judged. It's our words as well. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, is a passage that talks about the revealing of motives or intents on the day of judgment. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. So again, we have here this idea of judgment being associated with the coming of the Lord, with the return of Jesus Christ. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So here, again, the NIV, the phrase is translated, motives of the heart. Motives of the heart will be revealed. So what we do will be judged, what we say will be judged, and our thoughts and motives will be judged. Now, again, there is certainly a negative component to final judgment. Jesus said here every careless word or every misspoken word will be judged. But there also is a very positive aspect to final judgment. And that's really uh, what Paul concludes with in this verse. He says, because then on that day, when the motives of the heart or the will of the inner person is revealed, at that time each will receive his praise from God. So it's important for us to remember 
that, yes, final judgment is a fearful and intimidating day when every sinful activity, every sinful word is, is called into account, but it also is an incredibly exciting day when what we have done for the Lord, what we have spoken for the Lord, what we have desired in our heart to do to please the Lord, those things will receive the praise of the Lord. And remember, we've seen that in, in the John passage. It says they will be called out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Everyone will be judged, whether good or bad. So we have to, of course, fully embrace the aspect of final judgment that is the condemnation and the pronouncement of guilt and then ultimately the punishment that ensues. And we'll talk about that after we finish the theme of final judgment, uh, final punishment. But there also is reward. There also is gain. There also is benefit that can be associated and is associated with final judgment as well. But basically, you know, when you put these three together, and there are other passages that indicate the same thing, everything that happens in this life is judged. Everything is evaluated by the Lord, the perfect judge. And it's interesting because without getting into the whole context of 1 Corinthians 4, you know, the first thing that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time, wait till the Lord comes. So that's again this theme in Scripture where we leave judgment to the Lord. Now on the one hand, we are to judge and evaluate everything. But there is an ultimate judgment, a final judgment, an absolute judgment that we don't usurp. We allow the Lord to show that when he comes at the end of the age. Okay? So point five is just basically that everything, word and deed and thought, will be judged on the day of judgment. But any comments or questions about that point before we move on to point six? Yeah, Ted. Yeah, I was thinking about the idea of self-judgment. And uh, Paul, in, in, in verse 4 of the passage, Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Um, the one who examines me is the Lord. Uh, so, you know, if, I'm, if I want to um, prevent being having the Lord have to judge me harshly, final judgment, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to start judging myself now because I don't want to be caught later, so I'm going to stop doing bad things now. But it seems like Paul's emphasizing the one, I don't even examine myself, the one who examines me is the Lord, and of course that's consistent with other scriptures like the, at the end of the psalm that says, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. But I, so I think when you, when you read some of these passages about how every, boy, everything I think, everything I say, everything I do, everything that's in my heart is going to be judged by the Lord, it tends to make me in the flesh kind of paranoid. Like I'm not going to do anything because I'm going to get, whatever I do is going to get me in trouble, you know. And, and, but that, I don't think that's the response the Lord wants. I think he's, he wants to judge us. He wants to examine us. Um, but it, it does lead me to, be, to want to be more circumspect and, and to invite the Holy Spirit. You know, to search me and, and Lord, would you examine me 
and by your grace, give me the ability to change and to repent in areas where I need to, so that you know I won't be ashamed. I want, as Paul as it says in Hebrews, have to shrink back uh, uh, at the day of judgment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And and again, you know, even if you go back one verse further, verse three, it says, "I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself," which is along the lines of what you were saying. And again, you know. Judgment is a very broad word, and, you know, there certainly is a kind of, of sinful judgment that we are to avoid, but then there also is a, a righteous judgment that we are to actively participate in, but ultimately it is the Lord's judgment, it is the Lord's evaluation that we are to stand in agreement with. So in, in other words, if someone asks you, is, is lying a sin, you know, as a believer, you're not going to say, well, you know, I don't know, I don't want to judge. You know, that's obviously not rightly understanding what the New Testament teaches, because of course, lying is a sin. Now, we certainly want to, in humility, align ourselves with the just judgments of the Lord without taking the place of the Lord as final judge. And that's obviously where it starts to become sinful. You know, and even if you look at one of the most amazing passages about human judgment in, uh, I think it's Matthew 7 with the log and the speck, you know, again, there's an incredible evaluation of, you know, my own offense that has been forgiven versus the offense of someone else. So again, there is a place to evaluate the sin in somebody else, but we do it from a place of humility. We do it from a place of understanding that we are sinners that have been forgiven. You know, only the Lord can be perfect and say, you know, I have never sinned. And so I judge you a sinner as one who has never sinned. But of course, you know, the incredible thing is that, that Jesus who knew no sin became a sin offering for us. He so completely identified himself with us, who are sinners, that he took all of the weight of that sin upon himself. And so, you know, we're, we're going to get into a little bit, you know, how we as believers should approach final judgment. But of course, in a real sense, you know, when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking that final the, the punishment that is on the other side of final judgment upon himself so that all of us who put our faith in him are now rescued from the fear of final judgment. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. I mean, again, there is an order to these themes because you can't present every theme all at once, but it isn't necessarily some sort of divine order, and all of these things are, are somewhat interconnected. Um, so we will talk a little bit more about you know, what, what do we as believers, how do we think of ourselves standing before the Lord on the day of final judgment, okay? But any other thoughts or comments about this point, our deeds, our words, and our thoughts being judged? Yeah, can we pass the microphone? Just, um, I, I guess, as a, as maybe a, a balance to that tendency to be fearful, I think, of the Lord's judgment um, and our own. Um, just Jude 24, 25 have been on my mind a lot. You know, the to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Amen. And, um, yeah, I, I guess just that's what we trust, you know. 
Amen. No, and like I say, in, in a couple themes, uh, well, it's actually point nine on the second sheet where I have it as the confidence of believers. That really kind of unpacks, you know, some of how we should be approaching final judgment. I mean, and, and again, there is a balance there because then point 10 is going to talk about, you know, our works being judged. And again, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, if we are saved by grace, if we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, why are all of these passages talking about being judged by what we do? You know, our, our actions will be judged. Everyone will be judged by what they have done in the body. So we want to make sure as much as we can, you know, we rightly understand that. Because obviously in no way does final judgment undermine the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace absolutely is in complete harmony with final judgment. So we need to, because we ended our time by asking the question without really addressing it, you know, how do we understand, you know, final judgment so much emphasizing what is done, what is said, what is thought, but our, our actions, our deeds, how does that complement or go hand in hand with a gospel of grace? And so we want to see what the scriptures have to say about that. But the last topic on this first sheet, number six, we've already been, been talking a lot about it. Just one more passage that makes it clear that all of humanity is judged. Uh, this is Romans chapter 2, um, verses 5 and 6. And again, we, we saw it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. Um, but just that no one is exempt. No one is exempt. So believer and unbeliever alike are going to be judged by the Lord at the end of this age when he comes in his glory. Verse 5, it says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. So there again is that idea that all of humanity will be judged, and specifically, all of humanity is going to be judged by what they have done. So before we get into it deeper and a couple of, of topics down from where we are right now, this really undermines that terrible theology that says, you know, since I'm saved and since I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. I can go out and live an immoral life, a selfish life, a terrible life because, you know, I'm saved and I know I'm going to be in heaven. You know, I haven't heard anyone say that in a while, but years ago I did hear more than a couple people say that. Sort of this attitude that because I'm saved, because I'm forgiven, I can live my life however I want. Well, certainly the fact that we are going to be judged for everything that we do should give a significant pause in our heart as to is that really the way we want to live our life? Now, there's a lot of reasons, of course, why we don't want to live our life that way. But final judgment is one of those that just say, no, that's not really how I want to live my life. Because that is not something that's of no consequence because I'm forgiven. Okay? Um, so let's jump to the second sheet. This is final judgment part two. And just again, something that scripture mentions without actually going into great detail about, 
and that is that it isn't just humanity that is judged. We've seen now that all of humanity is judged. But scripture also indicates that angels are judged as well. And particularly in the 1 Corinthians 6 passage, there's something else that Paul throws in there that, again, the scriptures don't comment on a lot, but it's a very intriguing aspect to final judgment. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Now, again, the context is the Apostle Paul is correcting the Corinthian church, rebuking the Corinthian church for taking in-church disputes before secular unbelievers. And so he's saying, you know, how can you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, allow unbelieving judges or unbelieving whoever to make decisions over you? And so to correct that, he's talking about what is coming. So in verse 2 he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world. So here is something that, again, that the New Testament doesn't go into great detail, but somehow or another, not only are we judged, but we participate in judgment as well. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And then verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? how much more the things of this life. So two things that are, are really interesting here without a lot of detailed explanation. One is that we as believers, in some capacity, participate in judgment. I don't know exactly how that's going to work out, and I don't know any passage of Scripture that goes into great deal detail explaining it, but you know, beyond any reasonable argument, that's what Paul is saying here, that we as believers participate in judgment. And of course, the second point, which is the main point we're making here, number seven on the sheet, is that angels are judged. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says that we as the saints, we as those who have been made holy by Christ, we will not only judge the world, but we will judge angels. So how that's going to work out and what that's going to look like, you know, I, other than just saying it's going to happen, I'm not sure I can say much more beyond that. So, yeah, a comment or a question? There's no distinction at all in the text as to what kinds of angels, like fallen or otherwise, it's just angels. It's just the general word for angels. I mean, and even that word, you know, in a natural sense can mean messengers, like a human messenger. So, no, and, and again, it's just one of these things that the New Testament puts out there without going into great detail. Um, the Second Peter passage just talks about how right now, Fallen angels are being kept until the day of final judgment. Again, this is something that Peter, it's, it's, it's part of a larger argument. It's just sort of an example that he gives that basically, you know, if God didn't spare them and if God didn't spare them, then this is what he's going to do. But again, it's just a, a reference to this idea of 
rebellious, wicked angels are awaiting final judgment as well. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, and we'll talk about that more later, it's not the word Gehenna, it's a different word, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So this idea that some of the angels who have sinned, rebellious angels, what we would oftentimes refer to as demons, some of them are being held in some sort of imprisonment, some sort of confinement. Again, so much that's hinted at there without any sort of in-depth explanation. But the idea is, what are they awaiting for? They're being held for judgment. So judgment is coming. So again, the main point I think that, that is unarguably clear is all of creation is judged, not just humanity. Absolutely all of humanity is judged. But along with humanity is all of the inhabitants of the unseen realm. They are judged as well. And again, in some amazing, almost unbelievable way, we as believers are going to participate with Jesus in part of, at least, final judgment. So how that works, again, I, I, I'm not sure. Because we ourselves will be judged, of course. We are part of all humanity. But in a very real sense, we are going to participate with the Lord in judging the world and judging angels. Second, yeah, I'm sorry. Second uh, Peter 2.4 is just the passage that, that Peter is saying that these angels who sinned are being kept uh, in, in, in this gloomy place, dark place, awaiting judgment. But again, it's that idea that we're going to talk about next time, this idea of Hades and what we're going to call Gehenna. Because the word that NIV translates here as hell is not actually the word Gehenna. It's an even rarer word. I think it's only used here in the, in the whole New Testament. But the idea of Hades being the place of temporary punishment of the wicked, and Gehenna being the place of final judgment for the wicked. So again, 2 Peter 2.4 is sort of in line with that. It's this idea that there is a place of temporary confinement, imprisonment, restraint for some of the angels who have sinned as they await final judgment. Okay? Yeah, Ephraim, please. I just thinking in something that when uh, Lucifer was thrown down from heaven, you say he came with a lot of angels, and I, I just wonder if that those angels they probably will have to be judged, or that's the only thing I've been thinking because angels, for me, uh, thinking like it is, it will be part of the Lord of the God creation, there will be no sin, and then I don't know. It's just a question that raised in my mind, and the only angels they came, and I think there was thousands of them, they came with uh, Lucifer. They were rebelled to God, uh, rebellion to God. Can you say anything about that? Yeah, what I, what I would say is that Scripture just sort of gives us like snapshots without giving us sort of like an absolute time frame. So the first time that any of these characters appear in Scripture is Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3 is where we are introduced to the serpent. And remember, the serpent is the craftiest of all of God's creatures. But at that point, he is already in opposition to the Lord. He is already twisting the word of the Lord. He is trying to confuse and tempt 
Eve, and then ultimately Adam as well. So at this point, the serpent, who we don't know more than him in Genesis 3 as the serpent, is already in a fallen, sinful state just because of what he is doing and what he is saying. Now, of course, later we know with absolute clarity because other passages of Scripture tell us that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was none other than Satan. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning. What, when was that? What was that? Was that, you know, a, a, a perfect, created Satan, not yet corrupted, falling? If so, then that obviously has to happen sometime before Genesis 3, or is it something else? You know, we don't know. Revelation chapter 12 is where Satan is portrayed as a red dragon. And we are told that there is a war in heaven. And Michael is fighting the red dragon. Michael is an archangel. And what it says is that with his tail, the dragon takes a third of the stars of heaven. And of course, we are told that the red dragon is Satan. Now, frequently in the book of Revelation, stars represent angels. Remember when Jesus appears in Revelation chapter 1, he's standing amongst seven lampstands, and in his right hand he has seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches. So what seems to be indicated in Revelation chapter 12 is a picture of Satan taking with him a third of the angelic host. But again, from the very beginning of Revelation 12, he is already a fierce, vile, wicked red dragon. So this is not a picture of Satan in perfection or uncorrupted. So when this takes place, we don't really know. Some of these things almost kind of have to be seen as as somewhat timeless, not that they didn't actually occur in time, but we just don't know when. <coughs> because as these things are told us, we're not given absolute time markers. But to your point about the angelic realm, part of it falling, or part of it being in line with Satan, to me, this is the clearest indication of that. That with his tail, he takes a third of the stars of heaven, Stars probably, well, most likely represent angels. But now, in terms of, of creation, we know that anything and everything that God made is ultimately very, very good. That God wouldn't have created evil. God is not the author of evil. Evil, from one perspective, is actually the taking of the good things that God makes and the twisting of it. So some simple examples, you know, Adultery is the taking of, of marriage and sexual relationship within marriage, which is beautiful and good, and it's perverting it. Lying is taking, speaking the truth. God is, is, is truthful. Jesus is truth. Lying is twisting. So on, on the one hand, evil is corrupting anything that is good. So when did the serpent become corrupt? 
because we know that God didn't make him evil. At some point, he must have been twisted or corrupted. But when does that happen? As far as I would argue, scriptures are completely agnostic on that point. They don't tell us. They don't tell us. But what we can piece together is that there is a component of the angelic realm that are angels that have fallen, angels that have been corrupted and perverted and oftentimes are referred to as, as demons or devils. This is what we would refer to as fallen angels. But again, you know, I remember Billy Graham mentioned it in one of his messages, you know, there just isn't a full doctrine of angels and demons in Scripture, at least probably not as full as we want. What, what is given to us is more than enough, but it certainly not, is not as complete as probably what we will understand you know, when we go to be with the Lord. So you know, what you're saying, Ephraim, is what we're kind of piecing together from these passages and a couple of others, that there absolutely was the presence of Satan in the garden when he fell, when he was corrupted, when he was perverted, don't know for sure, but then certainly at some point took with him a third of the angelic realm who also became perverted and corrupted and became what we would know as demons. Now, are faithful angels going to be judged? Probably just because all of creation is judged. It seems like what Paul is getting at and what Peter is getting at is that these are the angels that are rebellious. I mean, definitely Peter is saying that. Paul doesn't quite say that. So maybe faithful angels are here being judged as well. We just, this is the question, Camille, that you asked. We just don't know enough. So again, you know, there's certain things that Scripture leaves absolutely no uncertainty about. There's other things that Scripture just gives us a little hint. And, and to me, you know, the one thing that I'm going to take away from this is that angels are judged because all of creation is judged. And from this, of course, you know, because God is not the author of evil, he can't be the author of evil, and anything that God creates can't be evil. At some point, Satan, as we know him, really the only form we know him in Scripture, I don't think there's any absolute certain passage of Scripture. Some would say Ezekiel and, and Isaiah, I'm not convinced of that describe Satan in his pre-fall state. But because we know God is not the author of evil, we know that at some point when God created him, he was not the Satan that we know now. But as far as how he is introduced to us in Scripture, he's already in a fallen state at that point. So we really don't know much about how he got that way, or when, for that matter. So, Dave? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, earlier you said that rebellious angels are being held you know, um, for judgment. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, what about, I mean, there are other demons that are not being held. Is, is that a fair statement to say or not? <laughs> well, it's like we said, Satan is a, a roaring lion roaming about. And if, if our understanding of Revelation 20 is correct, he's bound. And so he's both. So, you know, the angels that Peter is describing here are these angels that are completely sidelined to final judgment? I, I mean, I think so. And I think there are other fallen angels that are out causing problems. But again, I don't want to speak that with absolute certainty. Because again, as Scripture is revealing to us truth, it can use different 
examples, different metaphors, different images. And so just because this is talking about the unseen realm, and Scripture definitely tells us it's there, and definitely gives us numerous examples of where it manifests itself in the seen realm, in the natural realm, but to speak with absolute authority about it, I, I definitely hesitate to do that. So what I, would, what I would guess is that the group of angels that Peter is talking about is a specific group of angels that have sinned that are pretty much completely restrained just because of the strength of the language he uses there. And the demons that, you know, say were manifesting themselves in Jesus' ministry. But the question is, you know, when he drove them out, where did they go? You know, okay, in the natural, a whole legion of them went into a herd of swine, but then the herd of swine went into the lake or the river, and then they drowned. So the flesh of the pigs is dead, but where did the demons go? Well, Jesus says, you know, when a house is clean, it drives out, and they go through waterless regions, and then they come back, and it's even worse than than again. But what is that water? So again, Flora, I, I just hesitate to speak with any absolute certainty as to where demons are in terms of the spiritual realm. I okay. do know that they absolutely manifest themselves in this realm. And when they do, the example that Jesus and the apostles give us is that we need to deal with them. You know, Jesus didn't go looking for demons. But when a demon yeah. manifested itself, he dealt with it. Peter and Paul didn't go looking for demons, but when they manifested in a physical body, they dealt with it. And what is, is emphasized is that Jesus himself, or the power of Jesus working through the apostles, drove the demon out of that human body. Where the demon went after that, I'd say scripture is a little less clear. Because what, what is that waterless region that it's, it's roaming about in? I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So, Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So again, unfortunately, I feel like most of what I'm saying here to Flora and to Ephraim is I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So, but the point, again, to me, the, the, the certain point is that included in final judgment is the judgment of angels. And all of creation will stand before the Lord. And again, like I say, in some way, we are going to be participating with the Lord in final judgment. As crazy as that sounds, that's the incredible place of honor that the Lord is giving to us. Okay? Any other thoughts or questions about that? Well, it's easy to say, I don't know. <laughs> So the next passage is one of these passages to me that really helps me conceptualize final judgment. And it's, it's in our favorite chapter here, Revelation chapter 20. We've been talking a lot about Revelation 20 in terms of the millennium, the thousand years. But we're going to look now at the concluding verses of Revelation chapter 20 picking it up in verse 11 and taking it to the end of the chapter. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, this is a very graphic picture of what we are referring to as final judgment. Sometimes this is referred to as the great white throne judgment because that is how John opens this portion of the vision. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now one of the key aspects of how John is describing judgment here is in terms of books. John says that he sees books open. And then he sees another book that stands alone. And that is the book of life. And from the picture that John gives us, what is recorded in the books is what was done in this life. So, picking it up in the middle of verse 12, it says, The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, again, we shouldn't think that this is to the exclusion of words and thoughts. I think John is just generalizing here. But what is recorded in the books is the entirety of human activity. Now, are there literally books? I mean, again, it doesn't really matter. That's what John saw. John saw these books. And what it reinforces is what we already saw, that what we do in this life, what we do in the body is going to be judged. So everyone is going to be judged by what is written in the books, and what is written in the books is the entirety of human activity. But there is a judgment in a sense that is preceding that, or maybe even we could say is the foundation of that, and that is the book of life. And what John says is either your name is written in the book of life, or it is not. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the book of life seems to be a book of names. The other books seem to be an account of human activity. And so here, to me, we get this incredible explanation of final judgment. So all of humanity, their names, either a name is found written in the book of life, or it is not. So again, this is a way of understanding salvation or not being saved. It's interesting because the Old Testament background 
We talked about this when we did the book of Exodus. In the, in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, they talked about the book of the living. And the idea of the book of the living was that a town or a region or a city would basically have what we would call a census or a population roll. Everyone that was living in the town, their name would be written in the book of the living. And then if you died, your name was removed. Or if you moved to a different region, your name would be removed. Or if someone moved into that region, their names would be added to it. And how often these were updated, you know, that, that I'm not sure. But it was simply the idea that the book of the living was just a list of everyone that was living in a town or a region. So we may recall in Exodus chapter 32, Moses talks about blotting their name out of the book of the living. What he's really talking about is killing them. He's not probably talking about the eternal fate that is at stake in Revelation 20. He's probably just simply talking about that if your name was blotted out of the book of the living, that meant that you had died. But what obviously the New Testament does with that is expands that. Because the book of life is not just indicating biological life, natural life. The book of life is now the book of eternal life. So if your name is found written in the book of life, you will not experience the lake of fire. So the way I understand it is that we should think of final judgment sort of in two stages. The first stage is the book of life. And all of humanity is divided in two. We think of the sheep and the goats. There again, all of humanity is divided into two groups. Well, Revelation, the same way. All of humanity is divided into two groups. Either your name is found written in the book of life, or it is not. And that is an indication of, do you have eternal life? or not. But then, all of humanity is judged by how they live their life. All human activity is recorded in the other books. So everything that is done in the body, whether it's done by believers or whether it's done by unbelievers, whether it's done for Christ or whether it's done in rebellion against Christ, everything that is done is ultimately judged and evaluated as well. So it doesn't conflict with the judgment of the book of life. It goes in harmony with. All of humanity is divided into two groups. If your name is found written in the book of life, you have eternal life. If your name is not found written in the book of life, you do not have eternal life. But all of humanity whether your name is in the book or not, will then be judged on what was done in this life. That, to me, is the central aspect of final judgment that the Lord is giving us in these verses. Okay, but let me pause just to see if there's any questions or comments about this.
Dave, I was just thinking that if your name, to me, if you're going into the lake of fire, it seems you don't even need to be judged because you're not in the, you're not in the book of life. So that's it. Whereas the people who are in the book of life who have done good, they'll have different reward based on what they have done. It seems though, if everybody is judged, then there really are levels of hell because people who have done really bad, bad things or people who are, you know, for the most part, lived a life that was as godly as they could but didn't know Jesus, then, I mean, there's a spectrum there in the lake of fire. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And if you look at number 11, we'll get there in, in a little bit. I have it down as gradations or variates in punishment. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. Jesus talks about two different types of, of punishment. Those who willfully did what was wrong will receive more blows. Those who ignorantly did what was wrong will receive less blows. So again, you know, what we see here is there isn't, there isn't just one way that Scripture looks at a theme like this. You know, for example, when we're talking about hell, sometimes it's referred to as a place of outer darkness. Sometimes it's referred to as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here it's referred to as a lake of fire. Well, again, as we're just thinking in terms of natural creation, how can fire be darkness? Because fire, by very definition, produces light. So in other words, there's different, there's different sort of like windows that Scripture gives us to understand certain themes. And so, yeah, absolutely. The emphasis of Revelation 20 is not a varying degree of either rewards or punishment. The emphasis here, I think, is the judgment of all humanity, the great judgment that divides humanity into two groups, and then the ensuing judgment that takes into account what was done by people in both of those groups. But there are other passages of Scripture, and we'll get to one next, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about variation in reward, but there's a lot of places about that. And then Luke 12, which talks about a variation in punishment. And again, as with everything that is coming, as, as we've been talking about, remember we, <clears throat> we broke this down into realized eschatology, things that have been fulfilled and that we're walking in right now, and future eschatology, things that are coming, things that are awaiting fulfillment. With everything that is coming, there is always going to be a measure of uncertainty, simply because it hasn't happened yet. And that, that is, that's just one of these amazing principles of Scripture. Even when God clearly says what he's going to do, until he actually does it and then interprets it for his people, there's a fair amount of uncertainty. I mean, look at how clearly the Messiah was portrayed in the Old Testament prophets. But look at how much the people of God didn't really know how those things were going to be fulfilled. Then even as Jesus was fulfilling them, they were still not really tracking with what was happening. Then the risen Christ appears to them, explains to them, hey, this is what was going on. And then the Holy Spirit gave them this incredible amount of understanding. So sometimes this is explained as word, deed, word. God says he's going to do something. He does it. 
and then he explains it. And when we're talking about future eschatology, all we have is God saying he's going to do it. He hasn't done it yet, and he hasn't explained it for us yet. When we're looking at the cross, he said he was going to do it, he's done it, and now the whole New Testament is explaining it. That's why we can talk about something like the death and resurrection of Christ with so much more confidence and certainty. Because, you know, the entirety of the New Testament after the Gospels is the Lord explaining what Jesus did on the cross. But when we're looking to future eschatology, obviously final judgment is included in that. All we have is God saying, here's what's going to happen. Now, what God says in his word about what is going to happen is absolutely perfect and totally sufficient. But because our, we are so incredibly limited and our understanding is so incredibly finite, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty until it actually happens and then he explains it to us. So everything that we're talking about is going to have a measure of uncertainty to it. So when it comes to you know, what does it look like? I mean, we're going to see a phrase in 1 Corinthians 3 where it says believers are going to suffer loss. You know, what does it look like to be in the glorious, perfect presence of the Lord and to suffer loss but not be thrown into the lake of fire? I, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, because to me, those are very, like, hard things to try to bring together. Um, what is a variation of punishment going to look like in the lake of fire? I mean, I don't know, but, but, but so in other words, Scripture is, to me, throwing these things out here, and we can say, yes, what God is telling us is, is accurate and reliable. But as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we're seeing in a mirror dimly. Once these things happen, and then once God explains them, then it will make perfect sense. So when we're talking about final judgment, one of the things that just is an absolute immovable foundation for me is the character of God. You know, when I start to think about, you know, how does he judge nations and individuals? How does he judge every person that's ever lived? I mean, you know, once you start even like just trying to conceptualize the enormity of the task of final judgment, we're just like, can't even begin to understand it. But God does it. He will do it. And with all of the sort of fuzzy edges and uncertainty around, you know, the details, you know, the one thing that is not uncertain is the character of God. And because he is the final judge, ultimately I trust him. Ultimately I trust him. So yeah, Karen, I absolutely believe there is a distinction in punishment there is a distinction in reward. How that works itself out, you know, if I, if I received less reward because I was lazy in this life, how do I not spend all eternity with regret? I mean, how does that work out? You know, I don't know. But I, but I do know these are things that Scripture tells us. And I do know that I can absolutely trust the character of God. You know, because a lot of people ask the question, like you said, you know, what about you know, the person who dies who never heard the name of Jesus. How does God judge them? Well, I know God judges them in line with his character. And I know his judgment is righteous and just and perfect. I may not have a perfect answer and a perfect understanding of that, but I do have 
an amazing understanding of the character of God because that he's made clear. So, but no, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And we, well, we may not get to it tonight, but, but you can look at Luke 12, 47 to 48, where it talks about receiving many blows and receiving fewer blows. Distinction and punishment. Yeah, please, Howard, thank you for being so patient. I was looking at verse 13. Uh-huh. Okay. Just the first part of it, where it says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in him. You know, you were talking about earlier, where Jesus drove the demons from Egypt to pigs, and the pigs ran. You know, am I being too little? You know, you hear about people being buried at sea all the time. You know, like all the soldiers, right? Who's been killed? You know, in the sea. Am I being too little thinking about things like that? Or is this? No, I, well, a couple of ways that I would understand it. But, I mean, these are the very questions we want to be asking. I mean, why, why does it talk about the sea giving up its dead? First, I think from a natural sense, I think what it's saying is, you know, even if you were not buried, which would have been the typical way, even in the ancient world, of dealing with a dead body. Most people would not have been died and had their bodies lost at sea. Most people would have died on land and had something done with their body on land. Some cultures burned. Uh, but most cultures had some sort of, of burial. So I think in part, what is being indicated here is that, that everybody is going to stand before the Lord. It isn't just you know, the bodies that were taken care of on land. I think it's probably one way. But another way is, metaphorically, the sea always stood for sort of like the forces that were opposed to God. Even if you go all the way back to creation, you know, the earth was formless and void. The earth sort of in Genesis 1 is just sort of depicted as this sort of out of control, massless, shapeless, boundless form, primarily of water. And when God creates, in a sense, he contains the waters. He separates the upper water from the lower water. He separates the lower water from the land. And so in the ancient world, and even from a biblical perspective, the sea was always sort of like a realm that was to be feared because you weren't quite sure what was going on there. And it seemed to be a realm that potentially was beyond the control of God. So part of what Genesis 1 is saying is that even that, this, this realm most feared by humanity, just obeys God's simple word. Because there's a verse in Revelation that comes a little later when John is seeing the new heavens and the new earth, there's no sea. Now, you know, when you're sitting at the ocean, if you love the ocean, you're like, wow, Lord, how can it be? I mean, oceans and lakes and seas can be so beautiful. Because, again, it's the idea that the sea is the place that is, you know, uncontrolled and in rebellion against the Lord. So I think that's part of it as well from a metaphorical standpoint. But I think just from a natural standpoint, it probably is just the idea that no matter where you died and no matter where your body went, whether your body was buried on land or whether it was lost at sea, that doesn't mean that you are not going to ultimately stand before the Lord. All right? Okay, thank you. But, you know, one other thing about the sea, you know, now you have an even more powerful understanding of the miracle 
of Jesus walking on the sea. Part of why that was so, you know, incredible and terrifying for the disciples is not just because, you know, it was night and they thought he was a ghost, but because here is the Lord effortlessly walking over this realm of chaos. He's not getting swallowed up in it. Even the hardiest of fishermen probably would not have been great swimmers. I mean, in the ancient world, swimming was not a thing like it is today. So a lot of people who went into the water, that was it. I mean, they were done. That's why shipwrecks, you know, were even more fearful than today. And so when you have Jesus just, you know, effortlessly walking on the water, because initially you think about it, and you think, well, that's kind of a random miracle. I mean, you know, of all the things that Jesus could do, why is he? But part of it is because of what the sea stood for. Jesus is declaring, I'm Lord of everything. I'm Lord of even that realm of chaos that is apparently in rebellion against the Creator. I'm Lord of that. And I effortlessly walk over it, and it's subject to me beneath my feet. That's, that is an aspect of that miracle of Jesus walking on the water. So, but yeah, if you, just, if you just do like a word search for sea and, and take it from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see that it's, it's a pretty powerful theme here. And it, again, is oftentimes used for God being able to display his power, even those realms and, and those places that are in most chaos. So, no, but thank you for asking that. Yeah. So not yeah. erudite at all, but there is a book of life in the basement where we wrote everyone's name who accepted the Lord in Hallelujah Night. Because uh, oh. what's, um, Carlos, <clears throat> Carlos used to tell them, you know, how scary hell was and oh. did they want to go there. Sometimes he would even have like a scary, then, then eventually it just became a book and then finally we stopped using it. But I bet you there's some amazing names there that we can pray over. Amen. Amen. Yeah, no, I had forgotten that was a component of, of Hallelujah Night, definitely. Well, any other, any other comments or questions about the depiction of final judgment in Revelation 20? Because we do want to, I do want to get to these, these next three that give sort of how should we as believers approach final judgment. So, but, but another comment? You sure? Okay. So what we want to do now, we've been, we've been hinting at it, and again, like I say, the order of these topics are just because you can't, you know, make 16 topics point one. Um, but, you know, in some sense, you could kind of put these in any order. And, and the one that we're going to deal with next is, is one that's incredibly important, which is the confidence that we as believers should have and do have in Christ when thinking about final judgment. Because the truth of it is, I mean, even, you know, the most, you know, solid born-again believers, if you think about final judgment, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's pretty, pretty intimidating. So what should our posture be? Well, a great place to start is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And most of us could say this by heart. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whatever is going to happen to us as believers at final judgment, and we are going to be judged, absolutely, what we can absolutely confidently say is that we are not going to be condemned. If we are in Christ Jesus, whatever is going to happen to us, however we are going to be judged at final judgment, we will not be condemned. So that is one 
part of how we should approach final judgment as believers. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Another incredibly assuring passage about how we as believers should think about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, standing before the great white throne of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. It says, In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like Him. So as believers, we are not condemned. And as believers, we have confidence when thinking about the day of judgment. Verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So for those who are not in Christ, the other side of final judgment is eternal punishment. But fear, John is saying here, fear has to do with punishment. And because we have been made perfect in the love of Christ, we can approach final judgment with confidence and so then we do not approach it with fear because fear has to do with punishment. So again, in a second we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 3 where we can suffer loss. Whatever that is, it's not punishment. Because John is saying what we can think in terms of standing before Christ and experiencing final judgment is that we can approach it with confidence, not with fear, being afraid of punishment. And then the last is Jesus himself. We looked at John 5, 28 and 29 two weeks ago, talking about the general resurrection of all believers. This is a couple verses before that. John chapter 5, we're just going to read verse 24. It says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. NIV has condemned. But the word that's translated there is either judged or condemned. So if we believe in Jesus and believe in the one who sent him, we have eternal life and we will not be judged, we will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So we don't want to treat final judgment casually. We don't want to say, well, because I accepted the Lord once 30 years ago, I can live however I want because I'm going to be saved in the end. What we do matters, but as we take seriously what we are doing in this life, we don't think a final judgment as having the possibility of us being condemned. We don't approach it with fear or punishment. And we know that we will not be judged. 
judged, obviously, in the sense of condemned. That's obviously why NIV translates it condemned. Okay? So these are just three places that help us as believers to understand rightly how should we approach final judgment. Now, in complement with this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Because this is really where Paul sort of helps expand this idea that even though we as believers are saved by grace, we do not have to fear condemnation, we do not have to fear punishment on the other side of final judgment, we do not have to fear the things that the unbeliever should be fearing, we can't just casually approach what we do in this life, nor can we casually approach final judgment. Even for us as believers, there's an incredibly serious component to it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. It says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Each one of us, confident, assured, forgiven, redeemed, completely embracing the gospel of grace. Each one of us, holding firmly to all of that, should still be very careful about how we build or what we are doing with our life. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now here again, it really isn't the language that Paul uses, but when we're talking about being judged by what you do and the gospel of grace, you know, if you were sort of kind of to, to lay this over Revelation, the gospel of grace is, my name is in the book of life. Being judged by what I do is, all of the books that have recorded human activity, you see, they don't contradict, they complement. Now, putting this over 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the foundation that has been laid is Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of grace. No other foundation can be built upon. But you actually are building on that foundation. The foundation is the gospel of grace. The foundation is Jesus Christ. But be careful how you build. Be careful what you do on that foundation. You see there again, the gospel of grace and being judged by what you do, they don't contradict each other. They complement each other. So everyone should be careful about how they build. Verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because that day will bring it to light. Remember, we talked about how the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, sometimes just the day. Here, it's just the day, but clearly this is the day of judgment. So we see six types of building materials. We see gold, we see silver, we see precious stones, we see wood, we see straw, we see hay. So six different building materials, but really they break down into 
two categories. Because that day, the day, the day of judgment, is going to reveal. How did you build on that foundation? Absolutely, you were saved by grace. You were saved by grace alone, by faith alone. Not by what you did. You're not saved by what you did. You are saved by grace. Final judgment does not undermine a gospel of grace. The foundation is Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of grace. But how did you build on that foundation? Every one of us in this life is building each day. We may not think of ourselves as builders, but every one of us is building. And we're building with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, straw, and hay. Six different types of building materials, but really two different categories. Because the day will bring to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So really, six different building materials, but just two different categories. Gold, silver, and precious stones all survive fire. In fact, with gold and silver in the ancient world, fire actually refined them and purified them. But obviously, wood, straw, and hay do not survive fire. Those are things that you actually use to build a fire, to burn a fire, to heat your house and cook your dinner. So the day of judgment is going to reveal how each one of us as believers built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We know that Paul is exclusively talking to believers here because the believer that unwisely built with wood, straw, and hay, they will suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved. And again, he speaks metaphorically because he says, but only as one escaping through the flames. I mean, what, what does that mean to be like barely saved? Because I, I would say that's kind of a good way to paraphrase that. You're, you're barely slaved. I, I don't know. All I know is that I cannot read 1 Corinthians 3 and say, because I'm saved by grace, what I do with my life doesn't matter. It, it does. I mean, it does matter. And yet, I can also not say that being judged by what I do undermines the gospel of grace. It doesn't. So we hold on to both of these things. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus did and by our belief and faith in him. But we will absolutely be judged by what we do. Okay? Now let me pause here. I'm not going to read uh, anything more tonight. So if there's any comments or questions, please feel free to jump in. Yeah, please. I just had a comment that what, what, what we're saying here is totally consistent with uh, Revelation 20 about the, the books in which the deeds are written and the book of life and, and everyone whose name is not found written and it will be thrown into the lake of fire because, you know, we would, we would hope, we would wish that as believers our deeds wouldn't be judged. 
you know, hey, I'm safe. My name's in the book of life. So just like you're saying before, I can do whatever I want. doesn't make any difference. But the fact that everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that my deeds are going to be all, all uh, read, 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 read out of the, out of the, the book of the, out of the books where the deeds are written, just like every unbelief, like everyone who's going into the lake of fire, my deeds will be exposed also. My name is also in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I wish that the Lamb's Book of Life was the only book, but that's not the way that the Lord has it. The Lord has the, the, the book of my deeds being written and being exposed at the end too. And uh, it's completely consistent with, you know, building with wood and hay and stubble or wood and hay and straw. You know, if, if I'm building the wrong way, that's going to be burned up. It's going to be revealed. And yet, I'll still be saved. My name's in the book of life. But, you know, it, it, it's incentive to live godly and to live for the Lord and, and not, to, not to just live selfishly and carelessly, even if I know that ultimately I'll be saved. Absolutely. And what you're saying, Ted, again, to me, just sort of brings up a, a, a difficult aspect of final judgment where we ultimately just trust the character of God. Because on the one hand, I am going to be accountable for my sins. But in a very real sense, my sins have been forgiven and Jesus took that punishment upon himself. So how, how, how does God you know, punish the unbeliever for their sins? And how does God you know, hold me accountable for, for my sins without actually punishing me the same way he punishes the unbeliever? You know, that I don't know. And, and that's the thing. I think to me, it's just one of those things that's a little beyond my ability to sort through. Because again, what you're saying is, you know, the two mistakes that I, I make are what I do doesn't matter because I'm saved by grace. And, and you see, if you say that, I think in, in part you're genuinely holding on to all of my sins are forgiven. You know, God is not holding my sins against me, and he is not. So you can see how even like with good intentions, you might be able to kind of like slip into that a little bit too much to say that, look, everything that I've done, every sin that I've committed is forgiven because it is. And yet, on the other hand, because we are accountable, we can slip into saying, oh, you know, I may lose my salvation at the day of judgment, or I may, you know, be punished, or I may be condemned. No, we don't want that. So there really is sort of kind of this incredible, you know, middle ground that we have to walk, which I think you are capturing really well. You know, we are not going to be condemned for our sins. Jesus was. Jesus was condemned for our sins but we are accountable for how we live this life. And that's just, again, I think, I think we all just sort of know how to live that out, hopefully. Hopefully to absolutely hold on to that, that confidence that Scripture you know, says that is ours and yet take seriously how we live our life. But you know why you know, the unbeliever who lies is going to be cast into the lake of fire for lying? Well, I've lied. And I'm going to be accountable for that on some level, but I'm not going to suffer eternally or be condemned because of that. And again, <laughs> you know, how does that sort out? It's the character of God. It's the character of God. So we really do have to very, very tightly hold on to the gospel of grace, which is every sin I've ever committed has been completely forgiven. Jesus bore that on the cross for me. And yet, I have to build very carefully. I can't just be 
cavalier or dismissive about my sin because it's forgiven and it will be forgiven. We have to hold on to the seriousness of how we build without slipping into the fear of condemnation. But how you were saying it, Ted, I think was really excellent. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, please. Yeah, and just, just go on what you and Ted were saying. You know, you were saying we shouldn't stand before God for fear, you know, being judged with punishment and all. But at the same time, don't you think we shouldn't stand before him with a bunch of pride and arrogance, a bunch of cockiness? You know, that's the other side. Sure. You know? And again, that's the thing, even, you know, as you were saying it, John says we have no fear because fear has to do with punishment. But yet, you know, Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, I mean, there is a fear that is godly and right. And I think that's what you're talking about. You know, we don't just like strut into the throne room and say, yeah, you know, give me my, give me my rewards. So there is a sinful fear that absolutely is to be completely rejected. But, you know, the Bible can use the same word to be talking about something similar but different. There is a godly fear that you're talking about that manifests itself in humility. You know, it's respect, it's awe, it's worship. That's a fear the scripture actually says we are to have. So the fear that John is talking about here is the fear that has to do with the threat of punishment. It's the fear that has to do with the, the thought that I'm going to be condemned. That fear is to be rejected. But like you're saying, Howard, to have an attitude of, of arrogance or pride, you know, that is, that is to not be our posture. We are to have a godly fear that respects the authority that he has, definitely. So, yeah. Can I make one other comment? When, when, you, when you're talking about the last things and final days and final judgment stuff, we tend to think in terms of events and things and deeds and it's, it sometimes makes your head swim, but ultimately it all comes back to Jesus, you know, and focusing on him. And, you know, even the discussion of the, of the, of the book of life in Revelation 20, you almost have to read side by side with the first, I think, mention of, Re of the book of life in Revelation, which is in chapter 5, where John's weeping because there's no one found worthy to open it. It's in the hand of, the, of, the, of he who sits on the throne. And the elder says, stop weeping. The lion, who's from the tribe of Judah, he's overcome, Amen. and it says that um, you know he he's he 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 purchased for God with his blood, and from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation, that's that's the only hope I have. Jesus purchased me with his blood, and that's why my name is written in the book of life. And boy, are we grateful to Jesus? Amen. Amen. Just as you said, mentioning of the book of life in Revelation, I wrote another one down. Uh, it's, it's a promise that's made to one of the churches. Uh, I have it down as Revelation 3.5, but this may be a good one just to end on. Um, Revelation 3.5. But thank you, Ted, for the comment. Um, so Revelation 3.5, it's the message to the church in Sardis, I think. Yeah. And Jesus says, He who overcomes or he who perseveres will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. So that promise as we persevere with Christ, as we continue with Christ, as we get up each day and fight the fight and live for Jesus, when we make it to the end, we can have absolute confidence that he's not going to blot our name out of the book of life. Okay? Well, let me close this with a, a word of prayer.
Heavenly Father, as always, we want to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to be together tonight, both those who were here in person and those who joined us on Zoom. And as always, Lord God, we just thank you for what you teach us through your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to understand a little bit better who you are, and in this case, what you will do as we look to that day of final judgment. And Father, even though I feel like I, we said a lot tonight, we're not sure, we can be absolutely sure of the most important things. Jesus, you are the judge of all creation. You are the creator, and you are the savior, and you are the judge. We're not going to be standing before Buddha, we're not going to be standing before Muhammad, we're not going to be standing before Moses or Abraham. Jesus, we're going to be standing before you. You are the judge of heaven and earth. And all creation will be righteously, perfectly judged by you. And Jesus, because of the work that you did on the cross, even though we want to take seriously how we are living each day, we want to take seriously how we are building. And Lord, we want to build with gold and silver and precious stones. And because of what you did on the cross, Jesus, we can approach final judgment not with fear, but with confidence. Not with concern about being condemned, but confidence of being judged righteous because of what Christ has done. And really, Lord, when we think about that, what an incredible motivator for us to live each day for you knowing that you have given us your righteousness. What an incredible motivation for us to live each day for you. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would help us to do that. And it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, again, thank you all for being here. In terms of our next time, we are going to be meeting in two weeks, which is Wednesday, May the 31st. I was hoping we were going to get done before we start summer evangelism. I'm not sure we're going to make that, but we will definitely meet May the 31st. We are actively looking at coming up with a definite schedule for summer outreach. Once we have done that, we will decide what we're doing with this once summer outreach starts. Carl says he wants to be here every night, so I do want to respect my brother for that incredible godly attitude. But... We do know that unless the Lord comes again, May the 31st is our next scheduled meeting. So the Lord bless you all. Have a great rest of your evening.